chapter 2, if you will. And, and again, I don't like to not be in a jacket, but I understand for the light contrast situation, we're good to go. So we'll do that. But uh, um, we're here now in, uh, now if I can read my Bible, <laughs> verse 8, uh, we're going to come back here into this section I want to clean something up at the end of verse 8 and then move into verse 9, okay? And, and I kind of struggled with how, how much to do this with because we've spent so much time in verse 6, 7, and 8. Verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, look at verse 9 real quick. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And Paul goes and he quotes out of Isaiah 64, okay? He, Paul, verse 9 is going to be a contrast to what's going on in verse 6, 7, and 8. But if you'll look at the end of verse 8, had they, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul uses a title there, Lord of glory. And it's, gonna, and it, it's an interesting thing here. Now, again, we, just as we pick back in this, uh, when he talks here about the princes of this world, and this connection with the Lord of glory. And I just want us to see it quickly this morning, and then we'll move over into, into verse 9 and so forth. Um, but I also don't want to go through it too fast to where you kind of go, okay, whatever, whatever that was, and let's move on. Again, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for going after human wisdom, human viewpoint. So he's He's dealing with that. That's the context. And in that context, he says, verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. And then there's the Lord of glory. So there's a connection here now to the hidden wisdom. And the fact is, is that if the princes of this world, the, not the human government, not the human agencies, but the, the satanic powers, the satanic operatives behind the scene. And we went and we saw in, in Isaiah where he's talking to the king of Babylon and Ezekiel where he's talking to the prince of Tyre and then the king of Tyre, but he's really talking to the satanic operatives behind uh, in, in modern day language, we would say he's talking about the deep state, okay? And the guy's pulling the strings behind, you know, the scene. And that's what he's talking about. And the very fact is, is that God had hidden some wisdom, some information in himself. And again, before the world unto our glory. So prior to Genesis 1.1. Paul takes us back to eternity past, and he says, here's what was going on in eternity past. And he does it here. He does it in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is full of it, where he drags us before the world began, before the foundation of the world. So Paul, he's a time traveler. 
and he takes you and I back to eternity past so you and I can see what was going on. And what was happening is, is the Godhead made a plan. The Godhead made an answer, a response to the rebellion that was coming of the adversary, but also of man, way before man was ever developed, ever created. And as God developed a response to that rebellion, he kept it hid. And the reason for keeping it hid was so that the, those that are going to rebel could not develop a response to the information. If you're going to rebel and you already know what the response, if the response to rebellion is a firefight, guns, blown, bombs, and blow you up, then when you rebel, you're going to rebel a little differently. You're going to be a little more subtle. Well, God kept a secret. He developed that response of, uh, to the rebellion of Lucifer and then to man. He kept it hid. And then in Genesis 1-1, when he created, Romans 16-25 says that we preach Jesus Christ according to Revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. So before the world began, he kept it, that information, the hidden wisdom. And then since the world began, he kept that information hidden still. He didn't reveal it. He never revealed it until the due time testifier to Saul of Tarsus and the Apostle Paul. So had the adversary known, had the adversary known the eternal ramifications of the Calvary, of the crucifixion, of the cross work of Christ, had he known what that all meant, the ramifications, the results, Paul says, and the Holy Spirit says, he had never crucified the Lord of glory. See that? He would have not allowed that to happen. He would have did the, his best effort to prevent it from happening. Actually, well, anyway, I can stay on course. <laughs> That's what Paul's getting at here. He's telling the, the Corinthians Look, guys, we have a realm of wisdom that is so far outweighs human wisdom. And you guys aren't progressing. You guys are staying. Come over to Colossians chapter 1. You guys are staying, in, in, staying put. Now, the cross, while the events of the cross, the events around it, the Lord says there in, in, in uh, Luke 18, we were looking at this a little bit yesterday. Uh, Luke 18 in the men's fellowship. 18, uh, Luke 18, 31. Then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. And then it's about the cross. So what's happening is, is while the prof prophetic scriptures reveal the event they never tell, they never say what it means. What did this mean? And you go over there in, into uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, and the prophets look into it. What does this mean? What time? When is this going to happen? And the Holy Spirit says, it's not for you to know. You just write it down. Why? Because it's not time to reveal what it means. Colossians chapter 1. You see, folks, while... The cross work of Christ, there's far more going on in it 
than just your justification unto eternal life. Being saved from damnation and hell and the lake of fire is wonderful. Okay, and most Christians stop right there. They never get into the 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 ramificate the broader scope of it. Look at Colossians one. Look at verse sixteen. For by him, and this is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Now, the all things are what? Principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, governmental structure. The terms in verse 16, you and I understand what a throne is. That's where a king sits. That's government. That's what he created. He created a governmental structure. He created it by him and for him. So the governmental structure is for him. It's for the Father. It's for the Father's use and activity. It's for the Godhead's use and activity. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. So just in case you don't under, remember what the reconcile all things are, he repeats, heaven and earth. What is he reconciling back to himself? The governmental structure, the things that he had created for the glory and the honor of the Father. The adversary with violence has taken it, taken them. Isaiah 14, when he, those five I will statements, that's not a passive thing. That's aggression. It's violence. It's violently doing it. He's not up there going, well, I think if you think you should. He's not doing that. You think about a dictator in our history books. They didn't come in and ask permission. Isaiah, uh, Lucifer doesn't ask permission. He takes, see, the cross work. The hidden wisdom, one of the eternal ramifications is, is by, his, by the blood of his cross, what's he able to do now? Go take it all back. He can reconcile it back. Now, by the way, verse 21, and who? You. That were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. There's your justification unto eternal life. So, the cross is more than just saving you. It's what? It's also got a ramification of the governmental structure out there that Lucifer says, I will ascend, I will set my throne above, I will do this, I will do that. They'll come and give account to me. They'll come, I'll set my throne in the sides of the congregation of the north. They'll come and give accounting to me. I, I will be like the most high. What did Calvary do? Just destroyed it. So the cross is God's answer to the satanic plan of uh, the satanic rebellion, but where? In the heavenly places. Now, his answer to Satan's rebellion in the earth 
has been talked about since Genesis 1 verse 2 all the way down to Acts chapter number 9. What's that answer? Israel and the nation of Israel. And that's why when you get into Israel's program and you see Israel not being who she's supposed to be, God's people, over here in Baal worship, and then, and then he comes and he does this for them and he does that for them and he makes those I will do this for you statements, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant we call it, the land covenant. You know in the land covenant, Israel was worried about losing the land and God came in and said, I will give you the land. Relax. You got to do what I'm, you got to obey my statutes and command, but I will. The Davidic covenant. You know, David was worried about his seed line sitting on it because they were such a wretched mess. And God comes into David and says, What? I will take care. The new covenant. I will do this. See, he's going to do this. But why? Because Israel is the instrument that's going to regather the nation of Israel or the earth back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing about the heavens. You realize that when Satan looked around and he saw, it, he saw the Lord resurrect, he wasn't worried. Oh, yeah, he, he can have the earth, but I have the what? The heavens. And where does man usually look up? To the heavens. See, we're naturally drawn to look up. So who's, up in, who's, who's the power source in the heavens? The adversary was. He's the prince, the power of the air. That's who he is. He thought, I, I got this made. He, Lord, you, Jesus, you can have the earth. I got the heavens. And then the Lord says, yeah, but we got a hidden wisdom. See? And the course of this world, go back to wherever we are, 1 Corinthians 2. You see, the human wisdom, the course of this world, that's what chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 is all about. It's all designed to promote the lie, to promote the creature more than the creator. And, and when you do that, then what begins to happen is, is human viewpoint takes on the, the course of the world viewpoint, takes on the adversary's viewpoint, and where is he going? To God or away from God? <laughs> away. By the way, that's why man hates your Bible, because it's anti-man, it's negative towards man, and it's positive toward God. So man doesn't like it. Why? Because you're a sinner. And the course of the world, your sin nature says, I don't like that. Now, when you come now into chapter 2 here, back into verse 8, all that's kind of review, okay? But now in verse 8, he says, Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, the hidden wisdom, the eternal result, the eternal ramification, the internal consequences of Calvary, he, they would not have crucified. And then he uses that term, Lord of glory. And, and it's, very, it's very striking that he, again, before the world unto our glory, our benefit, but then the Lord of glory, that title. Now, there's, come back with me to Psalms 24. There are several titles of the Lord. But when you think about Lord of glory, there's a title in Psalms 24 called King of Glory. Psalms 24. And when you think about this King of Glory, 
it's associated with, with, well, if we're in Psalms, then where are we at? <laughs> Israel's program and in the, in the earth. Okay, look at Psalms 24. And I just want you to notice the title. Because, uh, you know, Lord of glory and then King of glory. But those two titles are, are in reference to him in two different situations, two different realms. By the way, Psalms 24, Psalms 22, 23, 24 are messianic psalms. Who are we talking about? The Messiah, Jehovah. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates. By the way, do you see that how verse 6 ends? Selah, the end of verse 10, Selah. When you read Selah, I know what the commentaries say. Oh, it's a pregnant pause and then the music and all this. And yeah, it is in the, in the Hebrew, a pause button. But the pause isn't to catch your breath so you can go on to the next stanza. The pause is for Israel. By the way, it's not even for you. It's for Israel, the little flock, in the moment to stop and think about the doctrine they just read. Before moving on, let's go back up here and let's re-educate our minds to this doctrine. So there's some doctrine here in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 that we have to be aware of. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted, lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Now, we're, uh, the King of glory, five times he's going to use that title here, the King of glory. Verse 8, who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, think about, this, think about what we just read there. Who is this King of glory? Now, that's not a question of ignorance, like we don't know who he is. Okay? Rather, it's... Who has the right to do this? Okay? Who has the right to establish, by the way, gates, the kingdom? You remember the gates, the kingdom's got those 12 gates and all that. Who's got the right? Who has the right to enter into the kingdom? Who's setting this thing up? Who? Who? Can we identify him? Where is he? We need to identify this guy. Who's got the right to do that? Not, not in, again, they know who he is. But it's a who is this king of glory. So we have the king of glory here. Five, again, five times. It's an emphasis point here. Now, Paul is going to use Lord of glory. And he's going to use Lord of glory in relationship to this hidden wisdom, which had the princes of this world known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So in the rebuke to the Corinthians, who are again going after what? Human wisdom. Who are not walking in the edification process. Who are dysfunctional who are all over the board. One minute they're happy, one minute they're not. One minute they're hot, one minute they're cold. One minute, and then a bunch of them are just lukewarm in the middle, and they don't care. 
They're all over the board. Paul begins to tell them we're in possession of some information about the Lord of glory. We are in possession of a body of truth that literally manifests the manifold wisdom of God. And that information is so seismic, so, so, so wonderful, so uh, magnificent. It's, sh- it, it's shaking up the cosmos out there. Because if they'd have known, they wouldn't have crucified him. So 1 Corinthians 2.8 is a very important verse to grasp. Now, you're in Psalms 24. Look over there at verse 1. So the Lord of glory has a connection to the hidden wisdom and the heavenly places and the body of Christ and what he's doing out there in the context of you and I, the, the dispensational issues, the body of Christ. But look at the king of glory. Look at Psalms 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. There's a pull back for you and I as we study this to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the original rightly divider, two realms, heaven and earth. Verse 2, and the earth, bam, the earth. Now look at 24.2. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. The floods there, that's not Noah. That's the stuff in Genesis 1 verse 2 where he floods the creation with water. And I'll just say this, and we're going to look at some of this next year, I promise. I keep saying that. I have a a real dear good friend of ours, and he's like, you keep saying next year you're going to do stuff. I hope you're going to do it. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I hope I do it too. First, got to remember, you know. But when you look at water in Scripture is judgment. It's always about judgment. There's a judging there. The earth was without form and void. It's judged, okay? And when you look at that issue of water and how God uses water to judge, where are we? We're in Genesis 1, verse 2 and 3 here. Psalms 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? Look at where we are in creation. We're in Genesis 1. And to appreciate the king of glory is to go back and understand Genesis 1, 1, 2, and 3. And what did the Lord say? And let there be light. He Darkness. Now there's light. What did he do? He takes that water, he separates it out, he makes that firmament, called it heaven, and in that heaven he put the earth, and then he put all the starry sky, and then he put an open firmament around the earth, we call that the first heaven, and then he's got this, and then therefore if that's the first heaven, then what's the other heaven? Second heaven. Duh. I love that. People fight all, well, it's not two heavens. No, there's three heavens, you goober. Figure, and then he, he's outside of it. He's outside of creation. He's been that way since uh, chapter the, the gap between 1-1 one, one and 1-2. One, and he's outside of it. And boom, and all this is going on. And you know what he is? It's all ultimately to call him king of glory. Because that's what's been revealed. 
Paul comes along and says, yeah, we have a hidden wisdom that God kept hidden himself. And now we're going to call him Lord of glory. And we have to appreciate that what God created and the focus in on the earth. Come back to Colossians 1. We were just reading there. Colossians 1. So when Paul uses Lord of glory, it's the title associated with the heavenly places, the heavenly realm, while king of glory, by the way, you were on your way. Stop there in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. That passage in Psalms 24 In Psalms 24, verse 7, he says, the end of the verse, uh, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Matthew 25, verse 31, that's where that verse is fulfilled. In a future day, what's going to happen? When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his, what? Glory. That's Psalms 24. That's what Psalms 24 is picturing out over there to that. And you know what happens? Matthew, here we are. He says that's what's going to happen one day. That's millennial kingdom time. That's after the second coming. Second coming happens. He's got a lot of things in the second coming he accomplishes. The last of it, or one of the last of them, is the establishment of that kingdom. Why? Because he's 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 destroyed the enemy. They've been completely destroyed and wiped out. He's he's the deliverer. He's delivered Israel from satanic captivity. He's their avenger. He's destroyed the adversary completely and totally. He's taken the false prophet and the Antichrist and cast them alive into the lake of fire. He's then taken Satan and bound him in in the bottomless pit for that that thousand-year time. He gets the kingdom established. There's a resurrection of the Old Testament saints from Matthew to Acts. All the Old Testament believers would go in, and they go into the kingdom. There's Abraham. There's Isaac, there's Joshua, there's Jacob, there's all of them are there. They walk in in a new earthly body, everlasting body. They go in and he sits on the throne, Matthew 25, and then he looks at the Gentile nations, because that's who he's talking to here, and he says, okay, separates them out. You blessed, you did the Abrahamic covenant, you blessed me, you blessed the little ones, you blessed me, you're in. So Gentiles go in, you guys, good luck. And and literally he takes them and casts them right off into the lake of fire. There's no secondhand chance. It's a done deal. That is all under the king of glory title. Colossians 1, again, we just read this in verse 16, 17, 18, 19 there. By the way, verse 16, for by him are all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. There's Genesis 1.1. I know I just said a whole bunch of stuff. It's like 50 hours of study there. Do you realize that Paul demands that you understand all that? Because he'll make a statement like 1.16, and if you go, huh? then you've lost the benefit of understanding what it's all about. 
when he looks over at you, look over at 2 Corinthians 4. I'm getting off the subject, and I don't mean to. 2 Corinthians 4. Hold on to Colossians. When he, look, when he says to you in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, well, when did God do that? Genesis 1, verse 3. You better know about the rebellion of Satan in between 1, 1 and 1, 2. You know why? Look at verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them. Who in the world is the God of this world? Well, he just told you in verse 6, if you understand Genesis 1, then you know who that is, and you don't have to worry about it and guess and think the God of this world is somebody else over here, some man. You see how Paul just, he demands that you know this stuff. Well, I don't want to know it. It's Israel's program. Yeah, but it brings great benefit to you to understand it. You don't have to understand every little nook and cranny because so there's a lot of it I don't understand. But anyway, go back to Colossians 1. You see, in Christ, I went too far. Verse 19, for it pleased, now I just want you to catch something. The Lord of glory, the hidden wisdom, the full ramification, the full revelation of all the truth, all the doctrine has now been made known. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should, now watch, all fullness dwell. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 10. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality. Do you see that? There's that connection between fullness and head of all. See, so you begin to understand the issue of fullness is him being what? Lord of glory, head of it all. Come back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter number 1, verse 20. Ephesians 1, verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above... All principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now think about this. This is what the mystery reveals to the adversary, is verse 20 and 21. You see, he, what was kept secret now revealed is what? He placed, God the Father placed the Son, where? Far above all. Now, far above all is more than geography. It's authority. It's, a, it's, it's an issue of preeminence. It's an issue of right. He has the legal right, the title right to this. You see, we do this far above and we go, da -da, and he's way over here. No, it's far more than just a ge geographical location. It's power. Who is this King of glory. Who, who, not who is he as in a question of ignorance, but who he's got the right to it. Verse 22. 
and hath put all things under his feet. See the authority. And gave him to be the head over all things. Again, all things what? Principalities, powers, okay? The government. To who? To the church. You see, his author- the authority given to him is for whose benefit? Our benefit. That wasn't, that's kept secret. It's now made known. Verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. You and I are the literal extension of the Lord Jesus Christ right to rule and to reign in the heavenly places. Some would say we are his proxy. You understand what that? We can we're standing in his stead. And that's that was never made known until the revelation of the mystery, the hidden wisdom. And you know what Satan said? Had I known that, Calvary would have never happened. And the Holy Spirit writes it that way and says it that way because that's how it would be. We're complete in him. We're complete in the one who is the head of it all. Therefore, we are the fullness. We're the ones who are going to fill it all up. So then we are the very object which Christ is going to use to secure the heavenly places. Come back to Colossians 2. And because of that, guess what? The adversary just loves you to death. (laughs) Not at all. He doesn't like you. Now, he didn't make the lights not work, okay? So don't think there's a demon, electrical demon in the, in the wall, all right? We don't know what's in the wall, <laughs> all right? You know what this is? This is common to man. This is the natural state of stuff getting old and wearing out. Look at Colossians 2.14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Again, I read that. Paul, Paul's the only one to ever say that. You and I had, we were never, the law wasn't given to you and I as Gentiles, but man, it, it made, Romans chapter 3 says the law made the whole world guilty. Verse 4, uh, which was contrary to us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross and having spoiled principalities and powers. Spoiled. Complete, he vanquished their rights in the heavenly realm. He vanquished their rights over the nation of Israel. He spoiled them. He triumphed over them. He's the Lord of glory. He made a show of them openly. I love that. He had kept a secret, something hid. He revealed that really what he did was openly destroyed them. Openly triumphed over them in it. Every day, every day of grace is another smack across the adversary's face of you lose and I won. And that doesn't make him happy. So he comes in and he starts using human wisdom to get you to do what? Well, now go to 1 Corinthians 2. He comes in and he... Folks, the cross is the very means by which God is creating the new agency called the body of Christ, the fullness of him that's going to fill all in all, and God kept it a secret. 
And because if he, if, if he hadn't, Satan would have known it. He would have never crucified the Lord of glory. He would have never done the, the very thing that needed to be done in order for all of the systems to come together. And when he did that, he openly triumphed over Satan in it. And because of that, then what does Satan do? Satan created a course of the world, a human viewpoint. Now, he's, this has been going on since Genesis 1 verse 2, okay? He just put a mystery component to it. By the way, you know what his mystery component was? You're really spiritual Israel. You're, you really need to be scriptural but not dispensational. You know, with Israel, he never had to worry about being scriptural and not dispensational because were scripture was theirs. <laughs> he just had to pollute it a little bit, just one, per, not even a percentage, a half a percent, a quarter, a, pe- a just a point whatever, and boom. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Remember what old JB did? Jeroboam, he went up north and he duplicated what was in Jerusalem, but he did it in Dan and Bethel. And you know what? For you to walk in and look at them, you couldn't tell the difference. You know what the difference was? They were in Dan and Bethel and not Jerusalem. Because where were they supposed to go? Jerusalem. You see how he duplicated that system so well that the only difference noticeable was the location. Think about how many people went to Dan and Bethel instead of Jerusalem that ended up in the lake of fire or in hell because they went to the wrong location. That's tough, but that's how subtle this is. So now in chapter 2, what Paul's going to do in verse 9 is he's now going to draw a contrast. Verse 9, but as it is written, he's going to make a contrast. Do you see the wisdom that we have over here in chapter, in verse 7 and 8, this hidden wisdom and this manifestation, and the fact is that the, the, the ramifications had the Satan known it, he would have not. You see that, guys? Corinth, this is where we should be functioning. You can't. I can't give it to you. It's a rebuke. I, I, I asked I remember a couple weeks ago, why in the world is Paul even telling them if he can't tell them? Because it's a rebuke. You should be ready for this. You should be on to the next stage in your, in your edification. You're not. You're over here in human wisdom. And by the way, how and where does human wisdom work? Verse 9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And Paul is, by the way, verse 10, but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Paul is going to draw a contrast here. Do you guys see the power behind the human wisdom, verse 7 and 8, that princes of this world, the satanic policy, they didn't know everything. They developed a program here. Now, so think about verse 8, 7 and 8. The adversary knew nothing. What does man know? Verse 9. Nothing. The adversary and his cohorts knew nothing. What is man doing? You know what you're going to find out? When man tries to go find God in man's wisdom, guess what they know? Nothing. 
and he's drawing this. You guys think just because you follow Dr. So-and-so that you know something. You know nothing. See, But God, verse 10, what he does reveal some things, doesn't he? But the only way for you to know what God is doing is for him to personally reveal that information, that truth. And he reveals it to his people. That's why in verse 13, what does the Holy Spirit use to, to reveal it? He uses words, specific words, to reveal who God is and what God is doing today. You see that? And, and we're going to spend some time through here. I just want you to catch for the rest of the morning, verse 9, in, con in how man doesn't know squat, and yet man thinks they know what? Everything. Ask a teenager, they know it all, okay? Look at, look at, look at the eye, eye gate, ear gate, heart gate. By the way, each of these are unreliable. The eye gate is unreliable. The ear gate is more unreliable, uh, more unreliable, and the heart gate is the least reliable of them all. Now think about the eye gate. Again, Paul's demonstrating something here about how each of these areas are never going to get them where they're looking to go, and yet the wisdom of God over here gets them there every time. The eye gate, empiricism. In other words, you use the, say, the scientific method. Empiricism, the idea is that all learning comes from only experiences and observation. You know what the problem with that is? God doesn't use science to reveal truth. Never has. Come over to Romans chapter 1. You see, what people want to do is, I have to see it. I have to touch it. I have to feel it. I have to taste it. And then it's real. And you know that God, now God uses science, but never to reveal truth, doctrine. He, by the way, Paul talks about science falsely so-called, okay? And there's a lot going on in that phrase, but, you know, you think about evolution. He's not dealing with that. He's not, by the science falsely so-called, science in, in, the, in the Greek language, science is usually about knowledge and knowing stuff. So God isn't, isn't anti-science. He just doesn't use science to reveal because what does man do to science? Well, Romans 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. But that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God, I'm sorry, glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and the birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. What did man do to science? Verse 20. He corrupted it. So you're, I'm going to use science to come to know God when what did you just, what if, what is man, what has human wisdom done to science? It's corrupted it. It's verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature 
more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, creation. When you look at creation, what should creation tell you? That there is a Creator. There's a God. There's someone bigger than me and who's got a design to this and a function to it and a purpose for it and that there is a God. But what does man say? No, I'm, I'm my own God. See, So the eye gate, that method, that see it, handle it, I need to, need to apply the scientific method to it. Because of sin, man no longer sees the testimony of the creator. So then what do they do? They reject it. They reject the creator. They reject anything of a wise design or a, or a God and, and, and so forth. They just know it just always has been here. The Big Bang Theory. And that's where we go. Now come over to Hebrews 11. So the eye gate is unreliable as a means of discovering truth. And the reason is, is because what has man done to it? Corrupted it. Sin has corrupted it. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now watch this. Here's the answer, by the way, to the eye gate. So if you're trying to know God and find out what God's doing, and you're using science and you're using uh, the empiricism and all that to get there, you'll never get there because sin has corrupted it. Your own bias has corrupted it. I was talking to some folks the other day. We were talking about discrimination. You know you discriminate all the time, don't you? No, I don't. Yeah, you do. You did it when you walked into the building today because you picked the door on the right against the door on the left. <gasps> you discriminator. It's a what? It's, it's a part of the bias. You have it. We always, anyway, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the what? The evidence of things not seen. How, faith is the only way to ascertain truth. Hebrews 10, sorry, Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the what? The word of God. God, remember the formula, Romans 4, that we looked at of, of faith? What is it? God speaks, and I believe it because he spoke it. That The object of my faith is what? God's word. That's where the value is. Faith, the ultimate source of truth, comes from the one who is outside of creation, the one who is outside of time and space and matter. And the only way to know what God is talking about is for him to reveal it and say something to you. And he has in his word. So then my faith, my eye gate says I've got to see it, touch it, taste it, do all this. And, but there's always a problem in that. What's the answer to the eye gate? Faith. Faith says, you know what? God's word says. So guess what? I'm going to believe God's word and my faith rests on the eye gate. I'm sorry, my faith rests on the, uh, the Word of God. You see, the problem with the eye gate is it's subjective to your opinion, to your bias, to your interpretation. So it's unreliable. Well, I'm always right. Okay, who decided you were right? 
I did. So, that and a whoop-de-doo for your Subaru, you know. It doesn't mean anything. Well, wait a minute. God's word is what? It's always right, no matter whether I agree or disagree with it. Because faith demands that God speaks. So faith is an objective means, while the eye gate is subjective to me. Faith is objective. And the Corinthians were out there operate, weren't operating on faith, and they're operating on what they can see. Why? Because they're all about feel it, touch it, taste it, look at it. So that's the eye gate, quickly, briefly. Then you got the ear gate. Now, the ear gate's what you hear. It's exactly what he said, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Eye hath not seen. So again, empiricism, scientific method, touch it, see it. If I don't see it, then I don't believe it. Well, then you don't believe in air because you can't see air. But you're breathing. So how do you know you're breathing? We're in the matrix. That's, a guy had told me that one time. We're all hooked into the matrix. And I'm like, matrix? And then I had to go watch the four movies to figure out the matrix, you know. <laughs> Man is wonderfully creative in getting around God's word. Anyway, if you don't know what the matrix is, don't worry, you ain't missing anything. I'll save you about five hours worth of video time, okay? Then he says, the ear gate, nor ear heard. Now, come over to 2 Timothy 4. The ear gate, this is secondhand information, okay? This is where people try to get to the truth based upon what someone else has said. This is illustrated in philosophy, mythology, theology, tradition. All of that is secondhand. Secondhand information is, well, I grew up a fill-in-the-blank, so therefore we do it that way. That's secondhand information. Well, my grandma always did it that way. That's secondhand information. And guess what? That is more unreliable than the eye gate. Because what are you, you're, you're basing your eternity on something that someone said and that someone is fallible and will fall apart at every, at every turn. Now, look at 2 Timothy 4, because Paul has warned us about this. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, think about this. More <laughs> itching ears, by the way, more unreliable they're going to heap to themselves. If you've got an itch in your ear, what do you usually try to do to that itch? Scratch it. Get rid of the discomfort. Now, what in the verse 3 is, is causing them discomfort? Sound doctrine. You see that? For the time will come when they will not endure sound. See, sound doctrine is making people what? Uncomfortable. So what do they do with it? They ditch it. They get rid of it. 
They go looking for something else. They go looking for the answers to life and the meaning of life and the fulfillment in life and something that appears to be easily to do, you know, get rich quick type of thing. And yet in the end, what do they end up? Falling flat on their face and in a worse, in, in worse case than they were to begin with. Isn't that interesting? Itching ears. Just preacher, give us something new. Well, how about you get the old down first? And then we'll go to the new. Itching ears. Verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Stories. Stories that make you feel good. Stories that move you. The art of speaking. One minute you get them laughing. The next minute you get them crying. The last minute you give them giving in the offering box. You think I just... Go to their speech classes. I have. That's what they do. Tell a story. Tell a joke. Tell a story. Tell them to open their wallet. They do that. They use a good words and fair speeches. What do you do? Your itching ears. The ear gate. By the way, verse 4 gives us the answer. They shall turn away their ears from what? The truth. Chapter 3, verse 6. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're in an endless search for the meaning of life, for the answers, and they're never able to come to what? The truth. Now, the truth here has a context. Chapter 2. Verse 25, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What truth in the context? Verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred. The truth, the truth of God's word rightly divided. The sound doctrine. They don't want that. They don't want 45 minutes of teaching, preaching, and boom. They want 20 minutes of a feel-good story and an hour and a half of the rock and roll music. And that's church. And then they go out and they feel good about it. And what are they doing? They're itching their ear. They got the Q-tip out, scratching the ear. They don't, want, they don't want the truth. So for the eye gate, what's the answer? Faith. Ear gate, truth. And then you've got the heart. And the heart, come back to Jeremiah 17. The heart, the third gate, is the less reliable of them all. Because it is the gate that rest upon human intuition, that rest upon you. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitfully, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You need to write down by that verse, Hebrews 4, verse 12, because the discerner of your thoughts and intents of your heart is the word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 12. So who can know your heart? Only the Word of God. You don't know it. Oh, but Rick, I do. I know. I know what I'm going to do. No, you don't. 
I would never do what that person did. Oh, yeah? Get in that situation, and you probably will. Well, no, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, You see, so the heart, you have to be careful with the heart. Now, come to Romans 6 and verse 17. Your heart, people believe what they want to believe about God. I feel it. I have peace about it. He spoke to me. All of that nonsense is coming out of your heart. It is no way to know the truth. That's not where God's revealing truth. Look at Romans 6 and look at verse 17. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Listen, guys, the satanic policy, the the adversary and his cohorts knew nothing about this. And you think dumb, thump man's going to know about this? He don't know squat either, and actually he's all boiled up in the course of this world, and it's a less reliable manner. You need to do what? You need to get over here, but God hath revealed them by his spirit through some words, and you guys aren't there. Look at Romans 6, verse 17. Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. The heart, the mentality of your soul, the men- you. But what did they obey? See, they didn't obey their own thought process. What did they obey? The form of doctrine. By the way, form of. For, don't, don't just say doctrine. Form of. Do- it's a specific doctrine. It's Romans 1 to 5. Here. It's doctrine. What, an, what, an, what answers the heart gate is doctrine. But not just any old doctrine. It's, the, it's a form of doctrine designed to do what? Transform you, renew you, move you into this new man, new creature, new body, new agency. You, you follow that? Okay. So when you come back to 1 Corinthians 2 here, And again, we did that quickly, and I'm sure I'll have more to say next time, as I always do. But folks, by the way, your heart is dangerous. You need to be very careful with how much of that you rely on. Now, we're not talking about the word working in your heart to go do. That's what Romans 6, 17 says. What? You know what they were believing? They were believing that they were sinners. They needed a Savior. They believed. They trust faith alone. Now they're this. Now here's our identity, Romans 6, 7, and 8. And we're over here doing, you see, they're on the form of doctrine. They're on the path. But your heart is what says, I, I, how did it make you feel? Oh, he spoke to me today. Well, by the way, if, if you say Rick spoke to me today, what did Rick speak? See, that's what you got to, that's, you got to boil that down. And that's what Paul's doing here. Back to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. The world system uses these three areas to discern truth. And they are dangerously unreliable. When God tells us, There is a far more reliable, objective way to know me. Verse 10. 
but God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Verse 12, now we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, that's verse 9, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We'll spend time in those. How does God work today? He's working through the Word. So what do I do? I take the Word in. I renew my mind day by day. And then I let the Word begin to work. And when that happens, now I can do what? I can freely know, I can know freely the things that He's prepared for me. I can know what he's doing. I can know who he is. I can come in and understand. Again, eye gate, the answer, faith. The ear gate, the answer is truth. The heart gate, the answer is doctrine. All right? Now, we'll pick up here next time and keep motoring along. All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your son. In your name we pray. Amen.